Welcome to The Edge, a Skillsoft podcast for learners and leaders alike. You know this, in every episode, we are engaging in candid, thought-provoking conversation on the topic of learning and growth in the workplace. Now, this is a two-parter on the topic of diversity, equity, and inclusion, featuring conversations with two guests who recently shared their stories as part of Skillsoft's new DEI curriculum. In part one, you listen to my discussion with guest Tashel Lawson, founder and president of FIG Strategy and Consulting. And now in part two, we'll move on to my conversation with Stephanie Wade, a political organizer, transgender advocate, educator, speaker, and former field representative and veterans liaison to U.S. Congressman Gilbert R. Cisneros Jr. Welcome, Stephanie, and thank you for joining us on The Edge. Hi, Michelle. It's uh, so nice to be here, and you know, thanks for inviting me. Well, Stephanie, first and foremost, I want to thank you for your service to our country. You were one of the first transgender women to serve openly on a congressional staff. You have a deep and long-term interest in military, law enforcement, our veteran community, something I feel very strongly about as well, and LGBTQ plus policy. Can you just share a little bit more about your background with our audience? I think they're going to find it really insightful. Sure. I mean, I, I grew up the most masculine person that anybody I, I met probably ever knew because um, I did what's called hypermasculinizing. Um, and, and that wasn't entirely a strategy to hide my gender dysphoria. And it was certainly not really a conscious thing, even though I knew I had these feelings that I repressed. It's just, it really was who I was. Um, and so I lived this very macho life. And um, I joined the Marines at 17. I enlisted, uh, graduated a year early from high school to do it. And I was a combat engineer. And I thought that was great. And then I decided to go to college. And I was like captain of the rugby team. I mean, I had boxed in high school and college. Um, and I'm really glad I did all those things. It was a wonderful experience. But in a way, it's kind of like having two lives because mm. I lived this one life. And, um, you know, I was a teacher for many years, but I was also, you know, a coach, a rugby coach, a basketball coach. I was a bit of a fraud as a basketball coach, but, you know, so I did all these macho things, but I had this, this gender dysphoria that in my midlife just finally demanded. It had mm. been there always, but it was just, it had to be answered. And that was right about the time that um, I decided to get very political. That I'd always been political and interested in politics and an activist, but 2016 was really it for me. And so I, I left a, a long teaching career and um, went into full-time organizing first with Swing Left and then a group called Groundworks. And then I wound up working for um, a guy who was running for Congress who not only supported, you know, the Equality Act and a lot of things that were going to help LGBT people, but in particular, he was a veteran, like I was a veteran. I'd spent nine years in the Marines. I'd been enlisted. I'd been an infantry officer. This is very core to my identity. Mm -hmm. And it was really difficult to watch what was happening at the time mm -hmm. with the, the assault on transgender troops in particular. Mm -hmm. And this guy was fighting for transgender group, mm -hmm. troops and actually as a veteran, as a former Navy officer campaigning for it. So that was a really easy decision for me to go to work for him. And when we won, I looked for a job and was warmly embraced by the, by the con then congressman and went to work in his office for two years until he didn't win re-election, which is what happens. <laughs> So what an amazing background and, and life experience. And, you know, I was 
I spent some time watching and listening to some of the work that you've done. And in particular, in preparation for this discussion, I listened to your very open letter to U.S. Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor. And you mentioned before that you've become a very vocal political organizer, an advocate for transgender rights. But I'd love to know a little bit more about your advocacy work and what that means to you. Um, you know, that that's just always been what my life has been about, um, public service. I mean, I, I, was a, I was a public school teacher. I was an infantry officer. I was always an activist. I was a, an activist with the Surfrider Foundation for a long time. Um, and I do a great deal of work around veterans. I think, you know, one of the areas that I'm particularly passionate about is, is very close to home. And it's about what happens to LGBT people, especially LGBT veterans. But you, you mentioned the Sotomayor thing. The thing that incensed me in that case, that was mm. the case that ultimately wound up the, the Supreme Court in a decision that allowed transgender people to be protected under Title IX of the Civil Rights Act so that we have equal rights in employment and we can't mm-hmm. be fired simply for being transgender or gay. Right. And um, that really, the, the thing that set me off in particular besides that, it, is that it wasn't a sure bet that Sotomayor was going to vote with us. And she was obsessed with in her questioning that the real legal issue for her was, but what about the bathrooms? And the other thing that struck me was that the person who technically was probably putting on a very capable case in favor of our rights was a gentleman from the ACLU who um, is cis, who's gender conforming, you know, um, mm-hmm. uh, and straight, not gay, mm-hmm. and um, a man who's married to to a woman. So. Here's this person, you know, nice guy from the ACLU. I'm sure his heart's in the right place. But the questions that were asked about bathrooms and the obsession that these jurists had about the bathrooms, what struck me is transgender people have to speak for themselves and be out front, which is hard to do. And I don't mm-hmm. criticize my, my brothers and sisters. But if, if the attorney who had argued that case had been transgender, nobody would have, would have gone to the bathrooms. And, and if they had, they would have done it delicately because they would have realized, of course, this is a person who looks like a woman and she's going to use the woman's restroom or who looks like a man is going to use the men's, mm-hmm. men's restroom. And they're a professional pers- person and they're clearly skilled in their field. And that's what needs to be seen. People don't get their rights because they're given to them. They get their rights because they stand up for them they stand up for themselves. Nobody, nobody's going to give you something you don't demand. That's part of the lesson here too. And I think the, the thing for allies to do, especially in the workplace setting, is to make sure that there's a level playing field where people don't feel the deck's completely stacked against them and they feel forced into silence. In some ways, I agree completely. You know, People need to stand up for their rights. But in other ways, we need to make sure that allies and others are supportive of transgender rights, that they are supportive of or understanding of why this is something that we need to understand and respect. I, it, it, seems, it, it, it seems so easy, and yet the fact that you and others have to stand up for what we all know is right is a challenge. And that's one of the things I try to make in that video um, that was addressed to Sotomayor. You know, I, I've led, I think, um, a very good life. I've actually done a lot of good in the world. Um, mm-hmm. But I didn't have a choice in being transgender. In fact, well, I take that back. I had a choice w- whether or not to suppress my gender dysphoria mm. or, um, or to come out. And that's really the choice faced by anybody who's trans. 
And it's a really hard choice. And for almost 50 years, I made the choice of suppressing it until I got to midlife. And then it, the, that gender dysphoria that had been with me my whole life, you know, I, I knew that I had had not only these feelings, but that when I was assured of absolute privacy, I, you know, there were times in my life going back to my childhood when I dre- dressed in women's clothes because it was, it was this overwhelming urge to, mm-hmm. to express that side of myself. And so my choice by midlife was either come out or I was literally getting suicidal. This is the thing that people should also understand, the kind of pathos that most of us go through in coming out. I mean, when I made the decision finally to come out, um, I really believed that I was going to wind up living under the, the Venice 405 overpass, which was near where I was currently living, mm-hmm. that my then wife was going to you know, fight and take every asset we had together that I would lose every relationship I'd been, I'd ever built in particular because I'd led this hyper-masculine life. But I think this is an honest fear and not an unrealistic one, I might add. Mm-hmm. And, and at the time I was working as, as a public school teacher and I was at a district that I probably couldn't leave because I was too senior to get probably hired anywhere else. And it was an extremely homophobic, homophobic and transphobic environment. So even though I probably had the job protections to stay, I basically knew there was no way I could teach them. Right, right. So this is the number one issue for, you know, this. I think this is mostly about how we help people in the workplace. And boy, transgender people need an opportunity to work. I mean, it's, it's not just a, a nice to have, it's the whole thing, right? And most of the problems that transgender people face are related to employment. Since I came out, I, my transition when I talk to my transgender friends and peers in the community is so much easier than most people. Most people have horror stories. I've been very privileged. You know, I have Ivy League degrees and I was able, because I had skills and luckily my, my ex-wife, she, she didn't want to stay married. She luckily has been incredibly supportive oh, in this life. That's best friend. And so that made things entirely different. And so I got sure. lucky in a lot of ways, but even so I will tell you that, um, that I, you know, I've faced a lot of, um, a lot of discrimination. It happens on a daily basis. I've had housing problems. It's very difficult to find housing. Often when you're not making a lot of money as a transgender person, you're in an expensive rental market. You're forced into rooming situations, which are often extremely disadvantageous for us. And homelessness isn't one single event. It's a, it's a path. Right. And this is something that happens to a lot of transgender people. And then finally, I'll say in healthcare, mental health care, housing, those things are all tied to work. And while I was really fortunate to have a job I loved working for, Cong- for a congressman that was really affirming and, and gave me lots of opportunities to, without even having to say it, to be in important public spaces representing the transgender community in a really positive way, that job came to an end not because of anything on tour, just because of an election. Right, right, right. It's been almost a year now and I'm unemployed. And I will tell you that I've applied to probably 30 jobs, all of which I've been really extremely, you know, maybe not all highly qualified, but certainly qualified for every one of them. And most of them highly qualified. And I'm still unemployed. Now, I never had any problem of employment um, before I came out. And Unemployment is twice as high among the transgender community. And I think a lot of people who think they would support a trans person when it comes to maybe hiring one would be like, they might not say it because they know it's illegal, especially now that the Supreme Court has ruled the right way. But 
they're thinking, oh, well, this person's appearance, you know, this is a very forward facing job. I don't know. Or is this going to upset the team? Or so even people who might think that they're, you know, in their own self conception are allies um, or friendly to transgender people are often, I think, in matters of employment and in matters around children, quite bigoted, often without knowing it. And that's not to blame those people so much as it is to understand that's what systemic means. You know, that's what systemic transphobia means. And it's just like with mm-hmm. racism. So, so Stephanie, I have to ask you this because I think you've hit on what really is one of the biggest and core challenges that transgender people face. And that is the discrimination that comes, especially when they're seeking employment or perhaps in the workplace when it becomes untenable, right? And so the question is, look, education plays a role. We know that, right? We can educate populations of people within the workplace, but what more can and should we be doing? And and what role specifically can allies play in helping us address these challenges? Because we, it's clear we need to do more. Yeah. So the first thing I want to do is I want to give a little vignette about something that happened that I think will shock most people. Mm-hmm. I actually had a meeting with a local city council person and the chief of police here in Southern California, where there had been an incident where um, a very troubling trans, a transphobic incident that mm-hmm. had occurred to transgender women who were assaulted. And, mm. and so I was there representing them with a couple other activists. An hour after that meeting, I happened to be taking care of some personal busy business at City Hall where I live in Anaheim. And I walked out of the City Hall and went across the street yelling, hurry up, hurry up, as I crossed the street at a, at a red light at, at the crosswalk. And then this individual must have noticed something about me and started screaming into the, his PA system on the car at the red light. I can see your balls. Trigger warning, I'm sorry. I hope that's not a little off color. But that sort of thing happens to all transgender women, including me, mm-hmm. quite a lot. But what really struck me about it is the juxtaposition of having just been in this meeting where I was right. well-respected. And, and the thing that occurs to me is that I would venture to say that most people are horrified by that. And that's what we think of mm-hmm. as transphobia, right? That bothered me so much less than things I've encountered in the workplace from people who think they're allies. And what I would, what I would challenge people who are listening to think of is that most Americans have just as much transphobia as, as the man I just described. The difference is they wouldn't act the same way. Most people mm. aren't going to get on a PA system and start shouting at, at you know, insults at people. Right. But I think most people have just as much, you know, and, and it's not because they're terribly bad people. It's because just about every representation you've ever seen of transgender people in the media, especially if you're, you know, over 30 years old, is that we're the butt of jokes, that we're sex workers, that the proper way to respond if you find out that you've, you know, been romantically attracted to, to a transgender person is revulsion or even violence, um, that these, these are archetypes that are played out over and over mm-hmm. again. It's very rare you interact with somebody. And, you know, when I speak to a group, how many uh, of you know uh, somebody who's trans? And very few hands will go up. And then I'll say, all right, if, if I asked you to pull out your cell phone, I bet you know more than, you know, 100 people, probably there are a couple hundred contacts in there. Well, you know, about, you know, a half a percent of the po- general population are, are transgender or gender nonconforming. So, you mm-hmm. know, transgender people, they just haven't chosen to reveal themselves <laughs> right. to you. 
And so that's an indication that mm-hmm. you're not doing the right thing. So I know this has been a long-winded answer, but you asked what what can we do in a workplace? Well, yeah. the first thing you can do is don't wait till somebody comes out. You know, don't wait till you have that first transgender interview. So I'll, I'll give you one quick th- like thing that everybody can do right now mm-hmm. if you want to make a more, more welcoming workplace. You got an email? Go to your signature line and add your pronouns. And most people who are gender conforming, who've never had any of these issues, find that they, you know, often they find that a little off-putting. I will be frank. I had enough trans transphobia internalized that even as I was coming out, I felt a little awkward about announcing my pronouns. Um, it seems sort of unusual and pushy, but it's not. Let me explain to you why how important it is. It's really powerful because. Um, if you're a transgender person, maybe you won't even come out at that workplace. When you see that on somebody's email, you know that's a person who's making a conscious effort to try and be inclusive and friendly and open to people like myself who go through a very rough time, right? And I would also say it extends beyond that to any LGBT person that sees that, somebody who may be gender conforming, but they're gay or they're a lesbian or they're bisexual, is going to say, ah, that's like a signal that this person is, you know, kind of, you know, trying to be inclusive. Um, And I will say that I've spoken to friends of mine who are African-American who feel the same way. They say that's a a signal that you can send. Um, The other thing is don't wait, you know, especially if you're a manager, do not wait until you hire your first African-American or your first um, wheel, wheelchair-bound, differently-abled person or your first transgender person to start having these discussions. That's right. way too late. Have way them beforehand. Mm-hmm. Prepare the office first because if you wait till that person comes in, you put them in an incredibly difficult position and you also put a lot more stress on your on your team and your staff because now they're suddenly reacting to something that you haven't discussed and you don't know what the company's values are. It's your responsibility as a leader to do that long before, to address these kinds of issues long before they obviously affect one individual in the office. I think that's so key. And candidly, it's one of the reasons why we built this new diversity, equity, and inclusion curriculum. And you took you took part in that, right? You provided both perspective and insight along with a number of other people. Because if we're not addressing it now, then we've got individuals who are coming in who, yes, they may see more diversity, they may see some equity, but they may not feel as included. They may not feel as if they belong. And so we've got to do better and do more. And so this curriculum is designed, I think, to really help people not only understand the challenges, but identify to your point, what are the things that I can do, not just in the future, but what can I do right now to make people feel more welcome, to make people feel like they belong? And so thank you again for your perspective and insight there. But I I have to ask, and when you did this, what also sort of prompted you to take part? I have experience in an office where I was subjected to a great deal of harassment and administration did not handle it well. In fact, there was what amounted to really, um, you know, retribution for my com- coming forward. Um, and I will say that I take some ownership in this and that um, I now know how to handle this better. Nobody, nobody hands you a manual that says, here you're trans, now this is what you need to know and how you need to act. Um, so when I came out in this particular office, 
I said, all right, it's really important for me to, you know, win people over, especially when I started to feel that people were uncomfortable with my transition. Mm-hmm. And when I started to get microaggressions, little things that people let me know that made me uncomfortable, or I felt like I was being put in my place, or I was being misgendered in sleight of hand ways, my initial response was to not, I don't want to make waves. And I said, well, let me just be hyper competent and let me be a super colleague and let me win them over and make friends with these people. And really that strategy was the exact worst thing I could have done because what I did by not standing up and saying something and then trying to befriend this same people as they were treating me really badly was they learned that the way they were treating me was just fine. And and remember that's their bias anyways. Right, 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 right. Eventually when things got worse and worse and worse and I couldn't take it anymore and I went to management, these people, when they had to be investigated, felt this tremendous sense of betrayal and whiplash because they'd been doing this for months and how dare I endanger their job. Um, But, you know, you see, it was endangering more than, you know, more than my job. It was endangering my health. I didn't sleep for a period of a year. I had to get on antidepressants just to deal with the environment in this job. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And I will also say that when I went to management about it, um, especially the first time, you know, the supervisor said, oh, that's not true, Steph. Everybody here loves you. And by the way, I point out that many people who love you can abuse you. You know, I mean, like That's right. I, I mentioned earlier in the conversation, I was talking about somebody who, you know, had harassed me in the street in a very obvious and, right. you know, Over. nasty way. Mm-hmm. That didn't bother me nearly as much as my coworkers who, you know, put me down, didn't treat me the same way, criticized me unfairly, um, misgendered me, gave me work assignments based on my gender that are based on my, uh, a male gender that I did not have or express mm-hmm. over and over again. That was far more painful and threatening to, you know, mm-hmm. my, my own employment and my job. And so I went to this manager and, and I gave him several examples of how this, and I, I did it again. I'm trying to win friends and influence people. I was very respectful and deferential. And I said, no, no, really people are extremely uncomfortable. That's the way I phrased it. Yeah, mm-hmm. I was uncomfortable. They were being nasty and they didn't know it, you know? Right, um, right. And his response was to say, well, we could do some kind of a training, you know, which I just asked for. He goes, but I don't know how many trust falls I can do, right? Huh. Making light of the whole thing and gaslighting me. Oh. And then he said, you know, or um, I can just have any, everybody in, in my office and tell them what my expectations are. Well, thing one you should have done that right away. Right. When somebody comes out as transgender or you hire your first, you know, African-American in a division or a company that's never had an African-American, yeah, you should have already been having those conversations, but definitely, especially about somebody in the middle of a transition, which is very tough, you got to have you set those expectations overtly and in those private conversations and have a training. You're in way over your head. This is a big deal. Um, but in any event, so again, I was polite and I said to him, I said, well, you know, I really would, I think it'd be great if you speak, if, if, if you have that conversation and talk about expectations with everyone. But I also think we need the training. And he was very upset and, or he was very annoyed. And he said, fine. He said, 
you pick the, um, you find the vendors and then you go and to the office manager. He goes, you go to the office manager. Well, I just described that the office manager was treating me the worst. So I had to work through the office manager to set up this training. Mm -hmm. And then by the way, it took months before the training actually occurred. And then it only occurred when I went to my boss's boss. And then when it did happen, the training was held via somebody who was in another city who literally dialed it in. So the facilitator made a phone call. Now, remember, when I tried to set this up, I found local, highly qualified presenters who were willing to give a whole day. Mm-hmm. And they thought that's what was appropriate. And they, and one of the problems why they couldn't get it set up is they were, they were insistent that th- the three levels of management above me and above the rest of the office needed to participate in the training in part because that's the only way people are going to see that's it as right. really important and, and mission focused. Right. If it's not worth the CEO or, or, or the boss's time, it's not worth the subordinate's time and they know it, right? Mm-hmm. That's how employees assign value to something. And so if, you, if they aren't there, what, what they see is this is a pain in the ass and they resent the person they blame for having taken them away from their, their, their valuable work to do this stupidity. That's the way they see it. So you've actually, that kind of training can make things worse. You gotta yeah. have leadership buy-in. Yeah, and it you know it sounds to me like look, some companies they've already recognized the importance of DEI, but you know we we hear from so many really good organizations that want to do the right thing stuff, but they're still grappling with what comes next. How how do we ensure that the trainings we do, that the focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion, it's ingrained in the fabric of the way that we operate. And what I just heard you say is that it has to be pervasive throughout an organization. It has to be recognized from the very top all the way down and throughout. But is there anything more that that organizations need to be doing and thinking about as they evolve? Because it's this is a journey. It's not just a one-and-done training, to your point. You're, you're really asking how you make the training meaningful and not just a check in the box. That's right. Because a check That's in the exactly box can right. be almost counter- counterproductive. The first thing is obviously management buy-in and participation. You've got to show by voting with your feet and, and your presence that this is important to management. But, I, um, you know, then I would say another one is I, I mentioned, you know, using your pronouns in your subject line. If the boss does that, that sends a message across the organization and everybody sees it. And I think a nice way to do it is for the boss to just do it and let people see it and ripple it mm-hmm. down, not say, oh, by the way, you know, not send out a memo that says, by the way, you can do this if you want to, or we want everyone to do this. Just right. build it into the culture. It goes to a little bit of hiring and making sure that you have a diverse team before you hire somebody that's well outside the lack of diversity you've created. Mm -hmm. So let me put it to you this way. First of all, we know that diversity works, that if you have true diversity, if no one group is dominant in an organization, um, that you get greater creativity and you get greater effort and you build stronger teams, right? But Mm -hmm. Even when we're sometimes trying to practice or have kind of diversity, I think we can often miss the mark. It's something to be aware of at the very least that, you know, you think you're doing great with diversity, but if one, if there's one clique or group that becomes sort of too tight and close, that can often be a place where discrimination sort of begins. And so if nothing else, sort of be aware of those things and look for ways to maybe mix that up a little. 
I think that's really good and and sound advice. You know, there I think there are so many lessons, Steph, um, from both you and 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 our other guests that that we had uh, on the first episode to Shell um, about what organizations can do to really create that sense of belonging. And some of them are very small. It doesn't have to always be a massive initiative, but I think the thoughtfulness and the care with which we take, and as leaders, the importance of modeling the behavior that we need everyone in the organization to see, that sort of rose to the fore for me as I, as I heard you speak. I, yeah, I think it's got to be a value, right? Yeah. A value of the organization so yeah. that anybody that's hired knows that, that, all right, well, I have some strong anti-transgender or anti you know, homophobic views, or I've got, you know, they get re- real fast that if I'm going to work in this organization, I got to check that at the door. That's right. And that I got to be very aware of how I behave because this organization has values that are different from my own. And so mm-hmm. that's got to be clear at the outset. And, mm-hmm. and, and it's not, and, and I think if you do it the right way, maybe there's some group, some out group, some marginalized group that you haven't directly included. But I think, you know, the, the process of demonstrating, especially from with leadership, that you're open and you're inclusive is going to really help you when there's something you didn't anticipate and something you hadn't worked on and prevent, prevent you from having big problems and make your team. And ultimately, I think the advantage is you're going to have a stronger team that performs better. You know, I mean, not just because it's going to create havoc if somebody has a lawsuit or, you know, you just have dissension in the ranks. You're just going to get better results when, you know, people are not necessarily completely tied in together, but they're, they have different thought processes and different ways and different experiences, but they all feel comfortable sharing equally and nobody feels like they're disadvantaged. I love that. I, Steph, thank you so much for, you know, it's really powerful. I think we've We've learned a lot um, from this conversation. And as we think about where organizations need to go, there's a lot that we need to contemplate. And I truly believe that in, you know, in having this conversation, so much of effective and meaningful DEI learning revolves around listening and listening to the stories of others and, and being open and receptive to understanding. Um, so to continue this theme, I have one final question, and it's something that bring it. I've asked all my guests. It's a three-parter. Uh, since I've asked, I've asked all my guests. You know, I started this this podcast stuff back at the beginning of the pandemic, and I think it was a way for us to understand and be a part of this collective shared experience, which nobody had. We know we we hadn't had before, and so as we reflect on this past year. You know, we've each had not only this collective shared experience, but our own unique take on it, right? The mm-hmm. the way that the pandemic has impacted our lives. So here's the question. It's a three-parter. <laughs> so okay. one. number one, what have you learned about yourself throughout the pandemic? Part two is how have you applied what you've learned in the flow of work, in the flow of life? And then looking ahead, what advice might you share with others? And so it's, what have you learned about yourself? What have you applied? And what advice would you give based on what you've learned? 
Hmm. Well, the first thing um, is cats. Got to have cats. Um, <laughs> I, I love that. <laughs> I, before, before I came out, I was um, I was a crazy cat man. Now I'm just a cliche. I think one of the things I learned is that working from home works really well. Yeah. Um, I know a lot of people of color and gender nonconforming and LGBT people that, that I know personally really feel it's a much safer or, you know, it's just much better on our emotional health. Um, sure. I'm an, an extremely gregarious person. And when the lockdown first happened, I was like, this is going to be bad for me. Um, mm-hmm. And I found that um, through teleconferencing, uh, like we're doing now, and um, and phone calls, I pretty much got what I needed. You know, I'm not mm-hmm. saying I, I, I want to stay this way forever, but I, I think a work environment where people can work from home is really terrific. And it's particularly terrific for people who are from marginalized groups. Um, mm-hmm. For some reason, I think when we're on, a, on in two dimensions on a screen, maybe we see people more three dimensionally. It's sort of funny. I mean, Ooh. yeah, it doesn't get as clickish, you know, and, and it's yeah, maybe yeah. a little bit more about the work. And I know that it's not always the best answer and it's hard to onboard, but if you can work in some significant, if you're fortunate enough to be in a business where you can work in some significant amount of telecommuting for people a couple of days a week, you're doing great things for the environment, but I think you're also doing great things for people who probably have a tough time in an office environment. And maybe the people in the E-suite, they don't get that because mm. they're people who thrived in that environment. Mm-hmm. But if they want to get the most out of their people, they should realize that a lot of people do a lot better work and can collaborate better often from home. And, and you know, that seems counterintuitive, but I think it's often the case. Mm-hmm. Pandemic-wise, I would say very much, you know, managers shouldn't be afraid to let people work from home. You know, I realize there's a value to the office and communal communal working at times, but a significant amount of, of work from home, I think, is actually quite healthy for an office culture. Yeah, I think we've learned a lot about the ways in which people work. And one of the things that we've talked often about and, and on this podcast is now that we've separated, in fact, work and workplace, which we have done, what do they mean, right? So yeah. work workplace is not necessarily the place where you get work done. It may be the place in which you go to have those social interactions that maybe you miss to um, collaborate um, in, in more of a, a different way, a different type of environment where it's not about, I've got to get my day-to-day work done. So we've learned a lot about, I think, this separation or this notion of divorcing work and workplace from each other. Yeah, I, I really... I hope it's something managers are really thinking about and not too quick to say, I need to bring everybody back in. This is what's always worked. Pandemic's over. Get back in here. Mm. You know, and and then maybe they can all save on office space and, you know, they still need an office, but not as big a one, you know? Well, we've done a lot of research and what I will tell you, Steph, is that we know that most people um, that we surveyed at least one, at least one pandemic related policy, whether that's flexibility, whether that is, you know, adjustment in hours, whether that is working remotely, at least part of the time that, that, that people expect companies to put in place policies that reflect the way that we've been working, not necessarily the way that we were before the pandemic. And so I think it's, it's going to be interesting to see, but I, I would, um, you know, with every conversation that I've had, it seems as if we are moving down a path towards what is that balance and what's going to be yeah. best for our team members. And it's not necessarily being in an office five days a week. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, like 
the Black Death was sort of the catalyst, you know, people think for for the Renaissance, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, like a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. Let's get some real lessons learned out of this that are really meaningful and impactful and make things better in our office offices. Well, thank you so much, Steph. This has been a great conversation. I really appreciate you sharing. Over the past year, we've talked a lot about DEI training, but I think we're discovering that the word training, it's too limited and, and perhaps might even be a misnomer. And I think that's because DEI programs address situations that are so systemic and complex and require more than just this point in time annual certification. DEI isn't a destination, it is a journey, one that amplifies diverse voices and perspectives, speaks to heads and hearts, educates on facts, and inspires through stories. As I said, when we started, Skillsoft is on a journey to one where we strategically invested in DEI for our own organization and for our customers and partners. And that's why we're focused on creating impactful learning experiences that are representative and inclusive of diversity through real life stories that allow for reflection and long-term adoption of new skills and concepts. To Shell and Steph, I want to thank you for taking the time to be with us on The Edge and for sharing your thoughts on the next steps we all must take towards greater diversity, true equity, and meaningful inclusion. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning into this and every episode as we unleash our edge together. On behalf of the entire Skillsoft team, we encourage you to keep learning and keep growing. And in light of our conversation today, consider the ways in which you personally can drive meaningful change from within your organization. I'm Michelle Beebe. This is The Edge. Be well.